This episode of ArcaSpeak is brought to you by Arcat. What's the one thing we all do in our practice? Search the internet for content, right? Well, we wanted to let you know about Arcat.com. Arcat is an online resource devoted to bringing content to the building professional. They have huge libraries you can access, and they don't hit you up for subscriptions. There are no fees, and they won't make you register to download content. We've all been there. You finally find the right file, and you get blocked with a registration pop-up, and you think, Thanks for wasting my time. I'll find it somewhere else. RCAT's BIM library is really second to none and available in just about any format you need. In fact, their entire BIM library is formatted to the last five versions of Revit. Their CAD detail library has thousands of CAD details, and if you need specs, the RCAT library is the most consistent library you'll find. Every single spec is written in the CSI three-part format. There's so much more on their site, including catalogs, videos, and a spec wizard. Go to rcat.com or download their app to check it out. It's a great free resource, and you don't have to register to use. Check it out today at rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com, and don't forget to provide feedback on their site. There's a button on the right-hand side of every page. Have a suggestion to make Arcat better? Click the feedback button and let them know, and tell them that ArcaSpeak sent you. Thanks, Arcat, for sponsoring this episode of ArcaSpeak. Welcome to ArcaSpeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture. Welcome to episode 112 of the ArcaSpeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxell. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And this episode, we have some very special guests with us, and we're going to jump right into what's new in the equity by design world. And we have two amazing guests. We have Rosa Shang and Annalisa Pitts joining us for the second time uh, for Annalisa and the fourth time for Rosa. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be Thank here. You. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. And we have a lot of topics that are all kind of intertwined to talk about tonight. Uh, Rosa, why don't you kick us off with what's what you guys have been working on with the Equity by Design findings and what's coming up in Orlando and all of the different initiatives that are going on in Equity by Design, and let's talk about this. I think last time we spoke about this was over a year ago, so uh, we'll need to rewind to 2016, and we ended up doing our second survey in 2016 and Annalisa can talk a little more in detail about that. But uh, coupled with that, uh, there was also the Equity and Architecture Commission at the national level, which was a continuation of uh, the resolution that happened in Atlanta. And then on top of that, there was also the fourth symposium that we hosted in October, which was always planned to be the big reveal of mm-hmm. the survey findings of from the survey that we conducted earlier in the year. So that's 2016. And then we'll go over 2017, which is what are we doing uh, this year, you know, and what are the kind of ways that people can plug in and get involved. So just so everybody knows, we're going to have links to everything in the show notes. So you might want to uh, either swipe to that section in your podcast player or uh, sign up for the show notes. They'll get emailed directly to you whenever the show goes live. That's all we use that email address for. And so you can subscribe to that on arcaspeakpodcast.com. 
and you'll see a subscription kind of little form on the right-hand side where so that you can follow along with all the links that Rosa and Annalise are going to be talking about today. So, Rosa, take us back to the first bullet point in your list right there. This is a long list. I know, there's a lot. 2016, what happened? Crystal ball, looking back. Yeah. Um, we wanted to do, to do a better survey. Uh, in 2014, we did our first one. We had great responses, but we were criticized because it was done through social media. People were saying it wasn't statistically valid. So we took that to heart and we conducted interviews of people we thought would be good uh, survey partners. And we ended up hiring the ACSA, the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture, and they have a strong research department. Kendall Nicholson is a PhD in, in that uh, he is the head of research for them. So we found a great partnership with Annalisa and Kendall to start the work, a continuation of the work that we had begun in 2014. And for those that don't know about that original survey, you can go back to the original episode where we talked about you know 2014. So we're not repeating ourselves here. But I wanted to give Annalisa a chance to talk about you know, what we did differently and some of the outcomes that came out of that survey from last year. Uh, sure. So um, the 2016 survey, I think um, for a lot of us, the biggest thing was, um, you know, the first survey really started with this grassroots question, um, where are the women architects? And it, it it grew into more than that in 2014, but I think that that was still really at the core of the idea. And in 2016, um, we wanted to expand our questioning to include many more people. Um, the question was really, um, are people in general um, experiencing architecture well? Are, is it a rewarding career? And is the experience of a career in architecture different for women or people of color than it is for white men? And so I think that the the really big change for us was a shift away from just what are the numbers to what is the experience of practice. And to do that, we we held a bunch of open sessions where we had anybody who was interested was asked to call in, let us know what their concerns were. And from that, we built a really big database of questions. We had over 400 questions at one point. Um, our research partners laughed at us and told us we could probably ask about 60. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the end, we ended up asking 124, but nobody got all 124. There were a couple of different tracks that you could oh, go nice. depending yeah, on uh, your answers to various questions. Wow. That is a boatload of information to, to kind of distill down once you're all done with it, too. I'm, I'm, this is why. How long did it take you guys to put together all of the, the data that you've now shown off? Um, we're take? still doing still? it. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, you, just, you just recently released, released the, the late, kind of a, a, a milestone, I guess, then in, yeah. that, in that. So from, from when you took the data till when you published it uh, to do the big reveal so far, you must have been waiting through data for just ages there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it took it just just cleaning up the data set. Um, I, Kendall gave me the exact number of variables that there were at one point, but it was, Whoa. you know, it was in the hundreds of thousands by the time you got through sort of cross tabulating everything and whatever. Yeah. And so just getting all of that cleaned took almost three months. And then there was a big sort of charrette over the summer. And then um, so from that, we we came up with about 60 key findings. 
we then we worked with our um, with our graphic designers, so Atelier Cho Thompson, um, and and they needed some time to then make those into the beautiful infographics that you see on the website, and so. Uh, the survey closed April 1st last year, and we were finally ready to share results on March 18th at the symposium. Wow. Yeah, so I'm looking back through our old episodes. You guys were on episode 91, uh, which was called Architect Ninja Warriors. And that is after the the Philadelphia AIA convention. And you guys kind of right. did a little bit of a, a breakdown of what happened there, what took place at the AIA convention at your hackathon. And then... Since then, you guys have been crunching all this stuff down. And I think what's interesting to me about this is not too different from how we approach a lot of projects, which is just kind of understanding the problem, right? It Absolutely. Was, there's a lot yeah. of different variables, different opinions, different viewpoints. And so you guys came away with 60 key points. And wh where'd you go from there? Well, there was also something noteworthy in that we had 8,664 responses, yeah. which is 3x what we had in 2014 wow. and we had we were restricted we couldn't use social media to get the word out we actually had to come up with an altogether new system which was based on building partnerships with NCARB, AIA, NOMA, um, ACSA, NAB you know so all the collaterals AIAS had to support us by pushing the emails um, universities and large firms too mm -hmm. to their members because we weren't allowed to get access to their database per se, and we were also not allowed to advertise the direct survey link on social media. So we mm -hmm. had two hands tied behind our backs, but we still got three X. <laughs> and I think I, I mean, the reason for that is that um, we didn't want a survey sample that was made up of people who were interested in equity. We wanted a survey yeah. sample that was fairly representative of the, the profession. And so we wanted that email to be that survey invitation to be just as likely to find its way to somebody who had never thought about equity before. Oh, yeah, you can't really target yeah. a demographic that way, right? That, that, you know, might answer your questions. It just goes out and then you kind of wait for the respondents to come in. Yeah, that's right. Actually, I ended up having an awkward conversation a couple of months ago with um, Emily Grandstaff Rice, who's the co-chair of the Equity in the Future of Architecture Committee that we'll be talking about a little bit later. But she let me know that she hadn't gotten an invitation to take the survey, and she was a little upset. And I was kind of like, "Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I don't know." <laughs> so, Annalisa, I'm curious: How did your results change from 2014? I'm sure you got different questions, of course, and and. The mm -hmm. survey was different, but did you see a change in the results because of the way you were conducting the survey? It's really hard to say whether it's because of the way that we were conducting the survey or if it's because something's changed over the last two years or it's even because of, I mean, if it's certain questions, it could be different because of where the question was asked in the survey. Yeah, so um, many variables. Sure. You know, it, yeah. it, it's possible yeah. to say. I, I do think that there were some changes. Let's see, There, there's still a big gender gap in terms of firm, gender and um, race gap based on firm, leader, on firm leadership. Uh, that still exists, but it's smaller than it was in the 2014 survey. There's still a wage gap on the basis of um, gender, but that's smaller than it was in 2014. And so I don't know if we're making progress or if we just have a different sample, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. That's going to take a long time to kind of see yeah. the that data change, I think. But yeah. what's I I think you guys should take some credit for that. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> this is definitely 
I mean, you got what what's interesting to me is the frequency at which I see all the information floating through emails, through posts on all the different LinkedIn groups. And, I, you know, it's not like I'm going out trolling for this stuff. It's showing up on my desk. And so to me, that's a, a sure sign that people are talking about this stuff. I mean, Absolutely. Not, not only one way from you guys, but from all different directions. Yes. And I think it's important to note, I mean, Annalise is pretty modest, but her kind of vision and leadership in this was really important. And the fact that we have evolved and expanded the complexity of the survey and that it was really successful. Uh, we went from a linear progression theory of career pinch points, you know, choke points of when you may leave the profession to this idea that there are pinch points and this other kind of uh, matrix of uh, what we're calling career dynamics, things that could happen to you at multiple points or any time during your career, such as finding the right fit, you know, with a firm or your own practice, whether it's taking a break and going beyond architecture and maybe even coming back, right? Work-life flexibility. These are things that everybody struggles with. So really uh, expanding the conversation into this bigger tent, if you will, of having people say, hey, equity matters to everybody. Mm-hmm. And how we go you know, forward next into having firms get involved into making that change in their firms and their culture and in their practices uh, is a win-win because they are able to retain their employees and they're able to have more meaningful work. You know, we're, we're testing all this out. It's mm-hmm. still a, a big laboratory, if you will, but we have a lot of interest. Mm. So so you guys, t- talk a little bit more about these 60, 60 data points that you kind of distilled everything <laughs> down to. You have so three think, hours now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm not going to tell you guys everything. Just hit the highlights here. I think yes. the thing that Rosa sort of started on, if I could expand a little, this idea of the the um, the pinch points is one sort of equity-based framework for looking at this issue, but I think that the career dynamics is another one. And just to list off the rest of those so that we make sure that everybody's got them. So it's finding the right fit, um, work-life integration, pay equity, professional development, and um, beyond architecture, which is sort of talking about time spent away from a traditional firm. Um, we think those people are architects too. Uh, and, and so the idea is that there's an interplay between those things and the, and the career pinch points that can make in, problems that an individual faces look really unique or different. But what we think is actually happening is that sort of a unique career pinch point might sort of interact with one or a couple of career dynamics to create real trouble for individuals. And so hopefully by giving both frameworks, we allow um, people and their firms to work together to solve these problems and sort of locate themselves in the data. So if you take an example like finding the right fit, what, what is kind of the outcome of that data? Is it it seems to me like maybe there's a couple, maybe there's more different ways that could play out. There's there's one way, which is like knowing the right questions to ask when you're going into something. But I think we all know that that doesn't always reveal everything that everybody needs to know, right? It's there. There's always some amount that you just don't get until you've put in the time at a certain place. And then it also seems like it would be amazing to have some kind of a, a database or something that people could look through to to help find the fit before they you know why, while they're looking so is yes. where, where do you where are you guys going with this information that you've kind of come up with here i think uh it's a little exploratory right now but i think <coughs> some of the key findings uh, 
have influencers on, for instance, there was one about satisfaction, you know, in, in the workplace and uh, the likelihood of somebody staying in a firm, right? Mm -hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, Annalisa, but transparency in the promotion process kept coming up mm -hmm. through different lines of questioning as a influencer, a positive or negative influencer, whether or not that firm had transparency, whether or not people had friendships at work was also something that was an influencer, either positive or negatively on that person's career perceptions, right? Yeah, so I, I think um, rather than, I think you're absolutely right. There is no such thing as the right fit for everybody. Um, finding the right fit is really about the individual and what they care about. And so while well, looking for the right fit, you could probably look at some of the other issues and see what's important to you. But for instance, we had a finding, we had a series of findings about um, what increased and de decreased the likelihood of burnout um, versus engagement. And so if being really engaged at work is important to you, and I, you know, I hope that it is, <laughs> yeah. there are a couple of things that, um, there are a couple of characteristics of firms that seem to really matter there. But I think the other thing about finding the right fit in particular that we thought was important was just thinking about career perceptions in general um, and sort of taking taking those career perceptions and seeing how they correlated with the availability of firm resources. And so my favorite thing from finding the right fit is actually just this slide that shows 14, 14 different areas of work life and allows people to sort of, uh, and it shows the average rating of each of those 14 areas of work life. And what we see there is that in general, respondents tended to have pretty, um, pretty positive perceptions of how autonomous they were. So were they able to make, mm -hmm. were they able to make the decisions to do their work? Were they satisfied overall? And then um, people tended to be pretty confident in their ability to do their jobs. Uh, meanwhile, architectural practitioners in general tended to have fairly negative assessments of their workload, of their work-life flexibility. And Rose is absolutely right of the, um, the, the lowest average perception across the board was of um, firms' promotion processes. Mm. Uh, people really struggled with that. And the other thing that we found was that women had lower perceptions on average of every single one of these 14 categories. Mm. And so it's not just that we're making less and that we're not advancing to leadership positions. The problem starts earlier. Yeah. In terms of just transitioning into one of the other topics of far, mm -hmm. as far as interesting findings, I think with work-life flex and taking a leave of absence, regardless of the reason for taking a leave, uh, the startling thing was that a large amount of people had never taken a leave of absence of more than, I think it was like six months or a year. But it was more when, than a month. More than a month. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> Sorry. Oh my gosh. And then, although, then the next question was, would you like to take a leave of absence? And the largest number of respondents said, yes, but I haven't asked. Yeah, just out of fear. So needing a break, but yeah. being afraid of its impact. And also, if there was a work-life challenge, where did you take the hit? So there was a bunch of uh, answers in the personal hit category, and then there was a bunch of answers in the professional hit category. And the majority of respondents took the hit personally, whether it was relationship conflicts or personal health. or Because you know, they chose to stay. Because they didn't want their professional advancement yeah. likelihood to, to take the hit, right? right? So turning down project you got to pick one, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. That was fascinating as well. I wonder how this would, this was U.S. only, correct? 
It was vast majority U.S. Yeah. Um, it I was wonder meant how to this be U.S. only, but we up. did get some foreign responses. Mm. I, I just wonder how it kind of stacks up versus European nations and things like that, just as far as like a, a comparative analysis between if it if if this is uh, nationally based i mean if it's a national problem or if it's an international problem right I, you probably you mm-hmm. probably have a lot more insight into that than than we do i mean we we just have a pretty small sample of experience here but uh, and I, I think th- also academia right it starts with studio and that's something that we're trying to dive into deeper in the next potential set of survey questions and getting um, the acsa and all the deans and mm. professors involved is are we creating and perpetuating that culture at that earlier age when they're going through architecture school to something that they take with them as bad habits into the workplace? Yeah. yeah I think something that's interesting about the way that we practice and people are uh, scored on performance and things like that, and it does start in school as well. And it seems to me that uh, people are always, well, I mean, in school we have group projects and in, in the office we have pretty much almost entirely group projects, right? But everybody mm-hmm. scored individually. And I think that that's to the detriment, especially when you're talking about this kind of thing, where maybe if, if there are bad habits to start in school, they, they seem to get worse and or, or are perpetuated in practice. This just seems like it, we're educated this way and we practice this way, but it, it doesn't really match how we actually work. Um, which exactly. is on teams all the time. I mean, the diversity of a team and the experience that they bring to a project will help that project succeed. Uh, and the the more or the less, I guess, um, diversity that you have or equity on the project is it's a it's a more I don't know what, what's the right word, but it's a it's like a singular kit of parts that you keep repeating more and more. I, we talked about this on the last one, yes, on the last episode. But it seems like that the more diverse of a team you have. Uh, again, everybody's working together the whole time, and 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 yet there are certain individuals being left out or being pushed to the side um, when it comes to the evaluation processes that we have, because this mm-hmm. is based on some the way we've always done it, right? Uh, yes. and, and that's not the way that that practice works anymore. But but nobody's redesigning this, and I think that's what's so exciting about initiatives like the ones that you guys are working on so hard here and so diligently year after year is just changing the perception and constantly asking why, why do we do it this way? way? (laughs) Well, and I think, I I mean, so I was actually just at the ACSA um, annual meeting this week and I sat on a group that was, I sat in, in a session about increasing diversity amongst the students in schools. And, um, I sat on a, on a work group that was working on curriculum. And it's like one of the two basic messages that the group had was be really clear about the performance evaluation criteria. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff, but we don't do it. And in our survey, one of the, one of the things that kept coming up again and again was that people who didn't know the performance evaluation criteria in their firm really, really suffered. Um, you know, they, yeah, they, they were less likely to believe that they had time. They were less likely to believe that they had enough time to pursue interests outside of work. They were less likely to be able to complete their work for, especially for people entering their careers. They were less likely to plan to stay at their jobs. They were, Mm -hmm. so they were thinking about leaving. I mean, it's, if we could just be clear about how we're, how we're evaluating people Mm -hmm. and set it clear expectations, it would be a lot, people would have a better time in the profession, I think. And even hopefully focus on teamwork, right? And yeah. 
collaboration as being one of the metrics which people will be evaluated for yeah and because we're so design focused right well you're training everybody in school to be the one percent of of the the design jobs in the in the firms that are out there right and Mm -hmm. and even those people who end up in those positions are going to be underserved because they're not they're not the black cape wearing designer. They have to work and they have to synthesize all the different information that's coming in and work with the teams and get all this stuff to work all the way through the project. It doesn't make any sense the way that we're doing that. Working yeah. in a vacuum. Yeah. 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 Well, but teaching in the vacuum too, where we're, as Evan was saying, you guys are pointing out that the education is kind of geared towards teaching the individual, not teaching the group. And so you're always kind of, it's almost like we are teaching each other to pit ourselves against each other. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Who has the best idea, right? And everybody yeah. talks over each other. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's I mean, it's interesting because we just talked about this on the last episode, Cormac. Remember, we were talking about the film school and how <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, sat, I sat in on this class. It was an architecture class, but it was architecture and film. And, and each student had to kind of play a different role in the creation of this film. Not everybody gets to be the director, right? Right. Mm-hmm. right. Uh, and so, it's the same thing in architecture, but we really don't treat it that way in school. We treat it as if everybody is going to be the director or the the lead actor or whatever. You know, right. it's uh, it's interesting, interesting parallels there, right? Yeah. yeah well, and we work. don't teach people how to collaborate either. I mean, if you right. were if you were a planning student, there would actually be an entire you would have a curricular element that was completely focused around purposefully teaching you not how to, uh, teaching you how to collaborate. Um, and what we do in school is we sort of say, well, now you're going to do a group project, and everybody, rolls and we're not going to change anything about yeah. how to teach you. And it's right. the most horrible experience that everybody ever has, so they don't want to collaborate anymore. Yeah. Right. It makes you never want to talk to another human being, <laughs> which is rough to your architect. It reinforces the fact, see, I should just work by myself. Yeah, it does. It does. It, it, you, you, it, it ruins trust, right? And it, it gets to the point where you feel like you have to do it all yourself. And so then you go to work in a firm and that's what you continue to prolif- proliferate throughout the firm. Oh, I'm just going to do this myself. I can't trust somebody else to do this. I guess at a conference that I was at two weeks ago, there was a speaker talking about how, you know, in the next 10 years or 15 years, the jobs that most of the jobs that we're doing today won't exist. There'll be brand new jobs. And a lot of that's going to be taken over by machines or or computers, machine learning, Mm. you know, artificial intelligence. Right. And you could, there could be naysayers that said that's not going to happen, but in anticipating that's going to happen, the jobs that will be retained are the ones that involves, you know, human, specific human only skill sets such as empathy right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how do Mm -hmm. you have empathy and connection with other humans so i think you know looking into the future building up architects to be champions of empathy in the communities that we serve is going to be a vital role in retaining our value Mm -hmm. i think one of the things again this is something that we just kind of talked about in the last episode and just kind of building off what you just said is is I'm kind of hoping that the robots will come along and take the the dull, repetitive tasks <laughs> so that we can actually go on and continue to do the creative work that we're trained to do. I mean, give more of that to more people so that uh, we don't have to spend our time doing code analysis, right? Let let the robots do the code analysis for us so that we don't have to do it and and allow us to, to, I'm, I'm to do what we're one. good at. I'm all What's for that, that too. 
Yeah. And I think the critical thing is having people change their cultural mindset quickly enough in order not to be the dinosaur, because we've seen it in the current political of, you know, outcomes that there are a lot of people that feel like they were left behind. And in order not to be left behind, you have to be future thinking. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's a good segue. That is a good segue. Yeah. Equity and the future of architecture, which is thus the name of the committee that was established this year. So it's not just about equitable practice, but what are the jobs and relevance that we will have and how do we create that meaning and impact you know, within our communities? We don't have all the answers, but if you think of the potential of technology combined with our empathy-focused thinking, the possibilities are limitless, right, mm-hmm. of what we can do. And I think I'm looking forward to the conference in Orlando, actually, because I think there's a lot. People complain and say, oh, well, there's not that much good content. But I actually did my homework and I you know, looked up all the courses or seminars that I would attend. And I created this curated collection, which we'll have a link to. But what are the, what are the uh, cutting-edge architects or architects who are doing things differently how are they practicing and what can we learn from them mm. in order to adapt to new practice culture or new ways of you know providing new services yeah this is a mantra i for me it's if if you if you're not happy with with the way things are going design how you want it to be i mean instead of mm-hmm. waiting around and letting it be handed to you yes which which seems to have been kind of the the status quo of the last i don't know forever uh so that's exactly what this is talking about, right? This is designing the future of the architectural practice to be as equitable as possible because that's going to lead to a healthier profession, right? Yes. So so, so there's, a, there's an article by Thomas Vanier on LinkedIn, but it's called Equity, the Future of Architecture. And this is just kind of a precursor to what you're talking about, right? That, that's right. That Emily's heading up. Oh, she's, uh, we're co-chairs. Okay. So. Emily and I are uh, the dynamic duo awesome. for this year. <laughs> so, and so Annalise is on that committee as well. <laughs> okay. So tell We've us more about AC. about what the the initiative is with that particular group. Yes. So there were eleven recommendations made, and they were spread out into five different keystone areas, if you will, and. Um, you know, within that set of each keystone has a representation, whether it was um, better architecture or, sorry, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now because <laughs> I don't have the diagram in front of me. and I Because there are one up. million things you have because to remember. There are 10 million things I have <laughs> 10 to million. remember. <laughs> but I think, I think the really I big thing that um, this committee does is that for the first time it raises equity as an issue to the board level. Mm-hmm. Um, it, right. it's been a, it's been a knowledge community, if I'm correct before. Uh, it, it, well, it wasn't even a knowledge community. It was just a fluke, uh, commission that was. Oh, uh, and I guess I was talking about the diversity council. I mean, oh, a, yes. a, equity and diversity within the Institute True. as a whole have never existed at the board level until now. And so That's what, it. what Thomas in his infinite wisdom did was he said, the board actually needs to be briefed on this on a regular basis. We need to be held accountable. Um, we've we've had this Blue Ribbon Commission. They've made all of these wonderful re- recommendations. And we actually need a board level committee 
to keep us on top of everything so that we know that those recommendations are being executed. Mm. Yes. So our emphasis is uh, triptych, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and future thinking about architecture and how that plays into that. So the five keystone categories, I have this up now. One is excellence in architecture from the better influences of equitable practice and this empathy for how we relate to our communities, how can we create better designs that truly serve the needs and listens to the people that are uh, beyond our clients, but the users. Mm. And then another category is marketing, branding, and public outreach. You know, how can we communicate the value of what architects do and our stories and the importance of um, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and also education and career development, not just at, at the academic level, but a lifelong learning uh, professional development where we you know, are mindful of uh, developing good stewardship of um, equitable practice, and then leadership excellence within the AIA and the profession. So how do we become champions, citizen architects, you know, amongst the leadership within AIA to you know, lead the charge? And finally, firms, workplace, and studio culture you know, how do we support firms, whether it's designing a firm self-assessment tool, uh, which uh, Gabrielle Bullock and Perkins and Will have started one. And as the commission or the committee, now we are starting to work on that as a group to be able to develop a toolkit, if you will, so that firms can do a self-assessment or an audit or pay audit mm-hmm. or see how they compare to the survey findings and then be able to implement policy and changes in order to track how they do each year and improve. And then also uh, working on a larger initiative with potentially Parlor out of Australia. Uh, We're still getting final confirmation on that, but creating a guidebook of equitable practice that helps forward the mission. So those are the key areas. Yeah. And you, well, it sounds like all of those are kind of have like a, a measurable or a, a toolkit that, that firms can use to, to help gauge kind of where they're at. I, it seems a little funny that we need to do that, right? But it does, at, at the same time, there needs to be some accountability for that and maybe a way to track it going yes. forward. And actually, we're not the only ones. The um, uh, Living Building uh, Futures Institute has instituted a program called JUST, which not only ties into of just workplaces, but the health and wellness and, you know, design outcomes of social impact and social, you know, equity in the kind of design mantra. So it's one of the pedals, if you will, beyond just sustainability or, you know, energy savings, et cetera, but to practice what we preach. Nice. And and you also mentioned something about, I think you are going to be moderating a panel, which kind of fits into some of the items you were just talking about, right? Coming up at the AIA convention? Yes, that's correct. Um, This is an early leak, and I hope they don't get mad at me. (laughs) No one listens to this Seriously, we we actually had a call today, and it was very productive about this panel session that's coming up at, at the... AIA conference on architecture in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was an idea that came out of the fact that there are many keynote speakers on all the days, but how do you get beyond just a scratching the surface level of conversation about the how to? So 
Day one is Francis Correa, Alejandro Arvina, Michael Murphy, and I believe Elizabeth Diller. But because of you know who's available, when they can, the time commitments, uh, the panel itself may change. So don't quote me on who's coming. But all these people, what they have in common is that they're doing social impact design. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to deep dive into the how do they do this work? Because people could say, well, that's fine and good, but I can't do that in my world or my locale because it's impossible to get the support get the funding go beyond local jurisdictions you know codes and etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but we hope that the moderation of this panel will help people figure out uh, and and get into that deeper dive conversation about kind of walk well, away with some actionable steps that they can right. they can yeah, take how um, alejandro arvina is able to offer up an open source blueprint for affordable housing and Mm -hmm. how he skirts liability. I'm sure everybody's thinking that, well, how does he do that without getting sued, right? (laughs) For having an open source plan. And are architects going to lose their their authorship or copyright on this kind of open source idea? People feel threatened, right, with new ideas. But I hope that this panel and its discussion will help people overcome some of those fears, Mm -hmm. perhaps. But we're really excited because this ties into our triptych uh, that we've talked about before, which is yeah. the equity in the workplace and producing the better architecture and then the positive inf- impact on the society that we touch with the better architecture, helping them improve their lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So so that's one of the things going on at AIA convention this year. What else are, What else do you guys have going <laughs> on? You, right, you're more. not doing anything else, right? <laughs> That would be crazy. Um, so I'll let Rosa talk about um, the hackathon that she's organizing. But um, both of us are also, uh, we're organizing a panel that'll be going over equity by design's uh, sort of key findings and then giving people a little bit of a chance to get their feet wet with an interactive exercise. And then, and so that'll be on Friday. And then on Thursday, as a preview to that, uh, we'll be on the um, on the floor, I think, doing Architect Live. Uh, so Architect Magazine will be interviewing us and then broad, broadcasting that panel discussion live over their website, which is pretty that's, exciting. That's also adding uh, firm leaders such as Carol Wedge in talking about what firms can do. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just our findings and everybody throwing yeah. up their hands like, oh, this is crazy. <laughs> and then and you think leave that... and get... Sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah. And Kendall Nicholson will be there, too, to talk about some of the really great work that the ACSA has been doing on this front. Nice. Yeah, we're really excited. It's our third hackathon. Yeah. So tell everybody. I'm sure everybody already knows what a hackathon is right now. I'm just kidding. So That's tell us hackathon. again what, what the hackathon is. It, it You basically uh, start hacking away at. So uh, came out of Silicon Valley as yeah. this uh, software based charrette, if you will, that usually took three days. And the outcome was that they had a software competition. They would try to identify a problem and uh, they would have an end product solution at the end of it. So ours is a little different, but same concept. Think Shark Tank, uh, business plan, elevator pitch. So within a four hour period, uh, people will be learning from three entrepreneurs. Lillian Asperin uh, from WRNS Studios, who's also co-chair of Equity by Design, will be our moderator. And from uh, also a lot of different icebreaker exercises, we're going to have 
six, up to five or six different strangers working together in teams to identify a problem within architecture in the context of equity and the future of architecture. And in case the theme this year is architecture in the era of disruption. The last year it was architecture in the era of connection. And this year it is architecture in the era of disruption. Mm. So with all these disruptive things happening to us, whether it's unknown political futures and policies or technology really disrupting the future of our profession in a way that if we're not prepared to think forward, we'll be left behind and somebody will be eating our lunch. I think Um, we can assume that architecture will be disrupted. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So it's giving people an opportunity to basically get out of their day-to-day, I can't do this because I have all these constraints to anything is possible. Reality distortion field. Yeah. Right. Suspend disbelief yep. for that four hours. Right. And we'll have um, a winner declared. We still haven't determined the prize yet, but we're hoping to have a good prize. Then we'll have a celebratory happy hour mm-hmm. uh, for two hours nearby and we'll announce the winners. But it is really an amazing bonding experience for that group that is lucky enough to participate. So it's like a it's a big design charrette. You got a bunch of groups doing a bunch of design. They're designing yes. the future of architecture, and then they're pitching it. Yep, and, elevator pitches. And the energy must be incredible. Oh, it is. Yes, and yeah. then we have them write aftermath blogs about their experience, so that the people who couldn't go to the hackathon can kind of live tangentially from these report backs from nice. the groups and the kind of highlights of their learnings. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that, I love this this idea of of these architectural hackathons, and I think that you guys have stolen the right model for this because it's it is so high energy, it is so creative, and so much information comes out. I mean, you're, you're putting together groups of people who have never worked together before, so they never know what's going to come out of their neighbor's mouth. Uh, there, it's a safe place to put any idea out on the table, That's and great. and because there's nothing too absurd to be said here, right? It's it's you have to rethink the way that we do things. And we can't say we're going to do it like we've always done it. That's right. It's a fantastic platform for this. The group is diverse. So interestingly enough, if you go to the pre-convention workshops and you walk across five different rooms, sadly, the demographic for most of the workshops is the same. And I'm not going to say what kind of same. (laughs) But when you walk past the hackathon room, it's diverse, not just diverse racially, ethnicity, gender, but also age. So we have a lot of young people in the room, as well as people that are more experienced in principles, which is really amazing. Uh, But it's intentional. We go out and we seek people who have that innovation, entrepreneurial spirit, suspending the disbelief thing, or even an interest or curiosity in it. And we rope them in. (laughs) I think what's so, so awesome about this is like, this is exactly what people are looking for in firms that they're going to, you know, especially new graduates. They're mm-hmm. looking for this exact recipe that you're talking about having. And if somebody is listening to this who's just graduating or they're in their final year or two of school and you want to get connected to other people who think like this, this is the thing to go to. Right? <laughs> this is this is a launching point for a spectacular career in architecture. Get making connections with all of these like purpose people in the same place at the same time. It's a, it's awesome. I am so jealous. Uh Well, uh, you're going to be coming to 2018 yeah. hackathon right yep, in yep, new yep. york okay yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs> can't wait very good 
And the best part is, um, I think we're going to try to create a toolkit this year of taking the hackathon back with you so that it becomes a firm resource because Karen Robichon did that for her firm. But I think it's a valuable tool for uh, firms to figure out their firm culture if it's not explicitly communicated in, you know, company outings or mm-hmm. kind of retreats, you know, offsites, et cetera, that they can create that culture by yeah. having this day of rapid fire thinking. It's awesome. So, uh, and, and you guys had some scholarships for this, right? Yes, we did. So what we happened with that? Amazing sponsors. So in addition to AIA San Francisco sustainable sponsors, we had HGA, HOK, McCarthy, WRNS, and Autodesk. And they've kind of been repetitive sponsors because I think they see how amazing this program is and they want to support it. So each year we give away 10 scholarships. Uh, we have a call for proposals of just why do you want to come to the hackathon? What do you think you'll get out of it? And then we do a blind uh, judging where we remove the names so that it's truly equitable. And we look at each kind of, we rate them and then we have the final 10. And we try to have a variety of students, emerging professionals and young architects. So we're really excited about the group that we had. Uh, We announced our winners, I think it was like uh, almost a month ago. And so they will be in the mix with the other professionals that can afford to attend. These folks are young and obviously not making as much as the more seasoned professionals. So we wanted to give them an opportunity. We saw that as a problem when we are critiquing, you know, what will we design in a pre-convention workshop that would people would want to come to, right? Yeah. And we didn't want the the ticket price, if you will, even though if after you come, you would see that, wow, this is worth like 10 times that amount yeah. of money because it's yeah. life-changing. Uh, but we want to have younger folks who see that as a barrier to be able to remove that barrier, right? Yeah. What other kinds of changes have you guys made over the last one or two years that uh, if people have been to the hackathon before, what could they expect that might be a little bit different? Let's see. Um, well, we change the speakers every year, and we always throw in something new that we've learned. So you have to be in the room for the kind of surprise. We hack the hack. Mm. <laughs> it's unpredictable. Inception. Right? <laughs> we keep you. That's right. We keep you on your toes. Nice. Uh, so I think, and the outcomes too. The outcomes are vast drastically different even though we try to keep the same rough armature so that because the theme's different or because just different people in the room everything people so and then this also it reinforces the value of diverse teams right so perfect strangers nobody knows each other uh, totally different backgrounds coming together to form some of the most amazing ideas i've ever seen we had a venture capitalist who was on our jury last year say to I think three of the winning teams, hey, if you really want to follow up with this and make this real, come see me. Nice. And we can do this, right? <laughs> they hear a lot of pitches, so. Yeah. <laughs> so that so was an educated was really thing sincere. to say. Yeah, cool. I don't think he would just say that to be nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I think ultimately, I don't know if we'll be able to do it this year, but I'd like to get a group of coders, whether it's you know women that are coding or mother coder or somebody who has an initiative where they're trying to get more people uh, involved in coding to pair up with the architects who have these ideas 
And it's uh, this kind of win-win where the coders are getting experience developing programs and apps, and then the architects are getting exposure to that whole process. So that's awesome. my 2018. So Rosa, <laughs> does the solution have to be an app? Have there been solutions that are um, there that been, are not digital, or is that the general assumption? Uh, more people have gone towards the digital route. They don't have to. It could be a policy or practice change or a new mode of practice or even a construction such as digital or sorry, 3D printing of concrete or something. You know, it could be a, a totally different idea of how we deliver architecture as a service or as a product. Um, so it's open to that ideation, but most people have gravitated towards the app solution just because it seems like there could be a lot of uh, headache removal of processes within practice today that exist with technology. Rose, but it's not limited to that. Rosa, have you heard about App Camp for Girls? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I need to get in touch with Gene uh, McDonald, the co-founder and board chair of App Camp for Girls, and learn more about what they're doing. They're, they're teaching women how to program young girls. Yeah. And they have a program that has actually started, I think, in Portland and has spread to a couple other cities. And uh, what they're doing is, is really incredible. And It's right up your alley. Yeah. It, totally. It, when you said that, I was like... I thought of the same thing, Neil. Oh, no. I, I got to tell her about what Jane's yeah. doing with App Camp for Girls. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make the connection here. Maybe something can happen yeah, from that. Awesome. So what else do you guys have going on in 2017? Maybe we can wrap up with, with what's next at, even after the, the AIA convention coming up. Yes. So we missed altogether the symposium, but you can watch the video or have people watch it's the video. It's a beautiful video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. But I think what came out of that was our famous workshops or infamous workshops uh, that always take on new categories based on what we learned from the findings. So some of the really juicy, meaty workshops that we've kind of made quarter part of our quarterly themes for the year. So that's something else that's different, where we realized that there was so much information that one couldn't possibly deep dive into those topics without imploding. So each quarter, we're choosing a theme or a topic area to cover. Uh, the first quarter of the year was uh, disrupting bias and glass ceiling and pay equity. And then in our second quarter, uh, we're going over um, change agents and articulating values. In our uh, third quarter, we're going to go over um, the work um, mapping and you know, professional mapping, but also charting your path of how your career trajectory and what your desired goals and how you connect your day-to-day -day work to that. And then the final quarter uh, is about firm culture or art articulating and developing the culture within the firm you know, to be more aligned with uh, the values of the people coming into it. And Annalisa, jump in if I've yeah. missed anything. No, so I think, I think that's, a great, um, that's a great introduction. And so as a part of every single quarter, um, as Rosa mentioned, we will have an in-person workshop. And so um, please do check out our website for the dates of those workshops. 
But then we'll also have, you know, an entire series. We've got multiple blog series running with content related to those workshops, related to those quarterly topics. I'm especially as as the research person, super excited about the what we're calling the metrics blog, which is doing deep dives into each of these topics. So hopefully, you know, later on, you can, (laughs) if you want to know just about the glass ceiling, you can spend 25 minutes reading about that rather than having to listen to having to go through 25 minutes of the glass ceiling times 10, because then there are the other topics. Mm. It's a daily dose. (laughs) Give out your your website now, and we'll we'll also include it in the show notes, but let everybody know where that is so that they don't have to wait till the end to find out. So that's eqxdesign.com. Great. And then the other cool thing is that with those blog posts and the deep dives, um, my husband, who's a data scientist, has been kind enough to agree to build us interactive um, infographics. And so uh, that'll that'll allow people to sort of get into the data and play with it themselves in pretty guided and interesting ways. And they're they're so well done. They're so well done that you can't ignore them. I mean, they're... I think that if if they weren't so well done, people might write them off a little bit easier. But it's like they encourage you to click in and and dive into the data more and more. And I think that yes. that interactivity plays so much in your favor here. Um, and it seems like such a surface level thing to say, but I think it really encourages people to see what the data is really saying and actually, I I, I guess, just visualize it. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. you've got this amazing amount of data. What does it all mean? And, and you guys are putting it together in really creative and informative ways that you can look at and and totally get it just by, by clicking onto these things. Well, I think at the end of it, th- thank you. That is a really, really nice, wonderful thing to hear. I, I think for us, it's, you know, I, I am a little bit of a data nerd. It's fun just to know things, but that's never been the goal. The goal is to help people sort of navigate what's frankly sometimes a fairly opaque and confusing um, profession. And so anything that we can do to make people be able to say, hey, this is what that means to me, um, I yeah. think that's that's the goal. And so the interactives have been um, a great tool for that. And we're so nice. thankful to Paul. And even as a, as kind of a side benefit to that, it seems like this stuff is so shareable, right? Because it can fit into somebody else's presentation. Um, it doesn't. It's it's just it. It's so nicely designed that people can take that information and run with it. Uh, and and I think that's going to help, right? It's going to help that information spread throughout firms and through lunch and learns and through user group meetings or uh, other things that go on on our day to day careers that that the, the stuff can actually kind of find its way into into other people's presentations and things i think that's great yeah i, think yeah, I mean it is uh <laughs> sorry. To speak. it's okay <laughs> it, that's been a little bit of a touchy point lately um it we is a good problem terrible but it is also fairly complicated and so yeah. we are in the process of developing a toolkit that'll sort of walk people that want to share that data through that process um, awesome. in the interim if anybody does want to share the data we would really ask that they contact us first Oh, good. Um, yes. Because we, we, we've been coaching people one-on-one. Awesome. And the, the please big no-no is don't take a screenshot from the website and then mm. interpolate what you think the data meant because that could be disastrous. On <laughs> <laughs> did, did you guys come up with any um, kind of, I don't know, light bulbs go off when you once you got the data of starting to put together the interactive stuff that that showed something you didn't even think you were going to be showing before you got the data? 
Does that make sense? Yes. You mean, did we think about telling the story a different way or did we see something that we didn't, did we did see like just, a result did, we didn't expect? Yeah. Did you just make a correlation once you saw it, like something you weren't kind of thinking you were going to show ahead of time or did you not have, did you have a complete open mind ahead of time or, or how did that play um, out? So we really, we, we definitely didn't have a completely open mind. That was sort of the, the big lesson learned this time around was that I actually had the entire final report outlined um, not the results, but I, I knew what I wanted to talk about. Okay. Um, and that's actually how we wrote the questions. We backed ourselves into it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that didn't play out. It wasn't very interesting. Some of it, uh, there was some new stuff, but we definitely had a pretty directed path. Um, but there there were some real surprises. I mean, I think for me, there's a finding about um, the roles that women versus men take on in the first five years of their careers. And it's not something that I had expected to see. But unfortunately, what we found was that Um, women early in their careers are much more likely than men to take on what we call office housework. So they they, um, are more likely to plan parties and to manage the office library. And they're less likely than men to take on strategic planning roles. So um, either doing strategic planning for their firm, writing firm-wide standards, uh, managing BIM BIM or design technology, things like that tend to fall to the men. And even the design and creativity bias there was a very poignant graph that you had done showing the pay disparity by project role. And the biggest project role disparity was actually design principles. Mm. And that actually correlates to a different study that was done by Duke University, the Fuqua School of Business, about creativity bias. And they had done five studies, and the first study of that set was about a hypothetical architect's portfolio one group, control group, was given the portfolio, same exact fabricated for portfolio, and told it was a male. And then the other group was told it was a female. And the result was that people rated the male person more creative than the female, even though it was the same exact portfolio. Wow. So wow. let's dig into yeah. that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that one is, it's so hard to test in survey data, but definitely I think that, you know, we have started to see inklings that there might be something like that going on. I think the other thing that surprised me was that we asked tons and tons of questions about firm policies and procedures, and we really expected to see, or we sort of expected to see that there were magic bullets and that there were just great things that a firm could do um, that would kind of help people universally. And instead, what we found was that for almost anything, having a policy in place really mattered. Um, People who didn't have any work-life flex benefits, for instance, really suffered, but there wasn't one way of doing it that was better than another. It was firms kind of needed to do what was right for them. And the biggest thing was that firms needed to provide their employees with access to firm leaders. And so firms that were working with employees and talking to them about um, their professional goals and growth as a part of the performance review process firms that were having performance review processes, and then firms where people had mentors who were senior firm leaders, and those people just tended to flourish. And so that's that, that was the big take home. It wasn't, you know, the big nitty gritty policies. It was developing sort of this culture of um, caring about your employees. Yeah, and, I think that's a really good point because, and we've, we've talked about this, we touched on this in maybe, I don't know, two or three episodes ago, but but talking about it from the perspective of the leaders in the company taking the initiative to do that to, like you just said, those firms flourished because of those actions, where I think a lot of leadership in firms are just kind of waiting around for someone to ask them. Right. Mm-hmm. And also 
the firms that walked the talk or the leaders that walked the talk, they actually had more positive impact. So the ones that actually took the time off with the work-life flex, you know, mm-hmm. had more positive impact on the employees and also ongoing uh, feedback versus that once a year performance review. So constant yeah. feedback yeah. was something well, else. Well, and I would, I would say that that one, ongoing feedback is important in addition to the, <laughs> yes. the performance review. I wouldn't say that one replaces the other. Oh, of course not. Yeah. Yeah, just don't something, wait a whole year. something that our firm has done just to kind of make it a little more personal is that uh, we, we've actually gone to that model where it's monthly check-ins. And I think that there's, there's a lot of people who don't like the monthly check-ins. They think it's too often. But I don't think anybody's complained that it's not just once a year anymore. Because the once a year thing um, all of a sudden is like scramble, scramble. Uh, oh, yeah, what were you working on all year? Uh, what were your goals? I don't remember them. And now at least there's a way for people to kind of check in and say, you know, I'm really not seeing any movement on this goal of mine. And I really need your help with this. Um, and they can they can just kind of keep being that squeaky wheel and, and making sure that they're getting what they're needing. And I think that it's been a good move for us um, overall. And so I, I would encourage people to kind of explore that that way of doing things because it really gives people a voice. Um, and, and it's important to know what, what people are thinking and how they're feeling and checking in with them and seeing what's going on in their lives. And if anything, it's just a good excuse to get together for 20 minutes and talk about your lives beyond uh, the office even. So it's, yeah. it's just kind of a personal experience thing in our office. And I think it's working out well. Sounds great. great. And, I, and I think the other thing that, um, you know, we see some in our research, but it's also borne out in a lot of related research is that another one of the strongest predictors of whether somebody will do well with a company and stay there long term is whether or not they believe they, that they share their company's values. Mm-hmm. And anything that a company can do to sort of echo those values of that employee is going to make them want to stick around for longer. And I mean, we all know this. It's really, really hard and expensive to hire architectural talent and then to train them. And so if you could keep that, we're knowledge workers at the end of the day. Companies would do better if they could keep us around for longer. Yeah. And there's an economic proposition too, which is that you spend two to three X that person's salary that you're trying to replace. And that's significant when you think of constant turnover, you know, versus just regular attrition. So yeah. when people say, well, why should I care about talent retention? Yes, they should, because it affects their bottom line as well as being the right thing to do. I've heard a stat and I don't know how right it is, but I've heard that it it a company doesn't break even on an on sort of somebody just starting out on their career for two years. Yeah, I've heard similar. Um, And I've got to tell you, (laughs) a huge percentage of the people with five or less years of experience are thinking about leaving their job in the next year. That's right. Um, And there's there is also studies that support pay raises via bouncing around, right? So yeah, yeah, that's right. The jungle gym. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So Rosa, other than the hackathon and the uh, the party afterwards, what else are you doing at the AIA convention, and how can people get in touch with you to learn more? Oh, and Annalisa. So we will Annalisa too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, our other cohorts. Basically, we are. We'll have in our curated collection, um, that will be a link on your show notes, the places and times of not only our events, but the events that we feel are of value to you as an architect in building that uh, social empathy or the equitable mindset 
And there's other opportunities to connect, whether it's different social events that are going to happen. There's the party, you know, that they have with Jim Belushi as the entertainment, or uh, we're going to do a repeat of Architect Ninja Warriors from Philadelphia. Nice. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) And we wish you guys were coming, but we totally understand, um, you know, there's busy and then there's busy. But I think it will surprisingly be one of the better conventions as far as the content because of the location. You know, not everybody is so keen on Orlando. There's different definite bias about Orlando, but I think they overcompensated they, um, <laughs> because of the, the conversation of the times, you know, not only us individually or professionally articulating our values, but how is the AIA and our professional organization helping to advocate and articulate our collective values, given the political climate of things that we believe in not being represented in our current government, right? Yeah. Can of worms right there. Can of worms. Yeah. But <laughs> we can only do it together. We're stronger together. Yeah. And teaching architects to be active citizen architects, I think, is important. You know, getting involved in our local communities, whether it's running for office or just serving on an architecture review board, I think we have so much to do that could benefit and have positive outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, guys, thank you both so much for joining us. And can you let everyone know where they could find you? Yes, at Twitter, at Rosa Shang. <laughs> That's <laughs> easy. Twitter, at EquityXDesign. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. And Annalisa just joined Twitter was it this year? Last year, actually. Um, yeah, I got bullied into it finally. So I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you did not. <laughs> you must join Twitter today, Annalisa. Yeah. I don't know how much for it. <laughs> I even, I got a, I I put a everybody. picture up too this weekend because you told nice. me of the egg. But anyway, I'm, <laughs> I'm at Pej. That's P-E-E-Z-J-E. We can talk about why some other time. <laughs> yeah. But... Don't try to spell it. Just go to the show notes and click the link. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us and, and really just kind of continuing this conversation. I, this will not be the last time that we check in with you and, and update everybody and all of our listeners about what's going on and, and and hopefully getting people more involved. Because I think the more people get involved, the more people that are aware of these issues and the biases that they may not even be aware of is just a step in the in the right direction. And as you mentioned earlier, we're seeing changes and it's and that's great. And that's what we hope. Yeah. Thank you guys for your service. I mean, this is you're definitely being like servant leaders here. And I think that's that's a model for all leaders to follow. So I, I'm sure that our audience ag- agrees that this is a fantastic endeavor. And we thank you for your leadership there. Thanks. And we have day jobs. Yay. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you guys for everything that you're doing. I mean, it's, um, it's fantastic the way that you guys, you know, get, get people talking about the issues in architecture that I think, you know, too often we just ignore because we're so focused on our day jobs. Yes. And well, you guys are so committed to you're making yeah, it easy for producing us, so. good content on a regular basis, which I'm just amazed at. <laughs> Yeah, cannot be a New Year's resolution for 2018. We can't get to that regular. We're trying to that regular. You're doing great. 
Yeah, you're, you're doing fantastic. Well, thank you both for joining us and we look forward to next time. Yeah, Likewise. we'll talk to you after the convention sometime. Thank you. thank you. Well, before we go, we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, RCAT. Check out all the features they offer over at ARCAT.com. And make sure to visit our website at arcaspeakpodcast.com for links to our catalog of episodes and sign up for our newsletter, which includes links to everything we mentioned in the episode. Between episodes, join the conversation on the Arcaspeak Facebook page or on Twitter. Links to everything can be found at the main site, arcaspeakpodcast.com. Stay subscribed, everyone, and thanks for listening. See ya. Goodbye. I join the choir to sing They're all competing for some other thing I join the choir to sing I join the choir to sing They're all competing for some other thing I join the choir to sing Join the choir to sing
Take 